0: Interested in the worm bins, um, but it seems a little bit intimidating to have worms hanging out in the kitchen.
1: In my backyard, the planting areas are postage stamp.
2: I'm Lisa Rothman and you're listening to Chew On This. Fresh ideas made to order. Today, how to garden even if you have a yard the size of a futon. We're at the Soma Street Food Park in San Francisco, 10 food trucks serving lunch and dinner seven days a week. This show is all about community. How to make the best use of it to find answers to everyday problems. So where better to do our show than at a food truck park?
3: It's a creamy, spicy
4: scallop street maki.
1: It's a uh, very saucy.
4: I like the spicy texture and the perfectly done rice.
2: I'm getting one of those. Coming up, how to garden in a small space. What's a good idea worth? What about a whole season of them? Chew On This could use your financial support. We've got thank you gifts for any budget. Imagine serving up some good ideas made to order wearing your very own Chew On This apron, or jotting down a good idea with a Chew On This pen. It's not some boring old pen, it's a float pen. Our amazing radio food truck travels up and down the length of the pen. Head to ChewOnThisRadio.com to support us. That's ChewOnThisRadio.com. Thank you.
5: It looks like avocado and poke and... Uh...
4: Brisket slider from the barbecue truck.
6: Yeah, it a coleslaw on the top.
4: All sorts of goodness typed up. It's kind of spicy and
7: good. Deep fried chicken...
1: And olive oil and
3: salt.
7: Yeah, an egg, a sunny side up.
3: Pork shumai.
7: It is definitely comfort food because it's
8: got that like that gravy feel, you know. The runny eggs. It makes everything better.
2: Those are just a few of the delicious items people of all ages are enjoying here at the Soma Street Food Park in San Francisco. Welcome to Chew On This. I'm Lisa Rothman. We take a challenge people face in their daily lives and ask experts how to handle it. We're at this food truck park because it's a vibrant public space where conversations happen. And because, let's face it, we can't chew on ideas alone. We'll sample the food truck offerings later on. Now, this week's challenge. How to garden even if you don't have a big yard. We've got two gardening experts who can help answer our questions. May Win is with an organization called Planting Justice, which works with people who've been in prison, employing them to plant edible gardens in low-income neighborhoods. Jay Rosenberg is the co-founder of 49 Farms. They're putting at least one farm in each and every one of San Francisco's 49 square miles. Let's have a round of applause for our experts. <laughs> Urban gardening is on the rise across the country. Of course, each and every climate or location raises its own gardening considerations, but many of the ideas you'll hear today will help you garden, even if you're listening in Pittsburgh or San Antonio. Imagine picking a lemon off a tree in your backyard, or gathering some basil from a pot on your balcony. Are there as many lemons on that tree as you want? Is that basil flourishing? And if you're not gardening, what's stopping you? Don't know where to begin? Have a yard that can hardly be called a yard? No yard at all. By the end of this show, you'll have some ideas about what to plant, even if you don't have much space to work with. And you'll also find out what to do if things go wrong. Ideas to consider when the beautiful illustration of a bunch of carrots on a packet of seeds catches your eye. I'm going to ask the experts for their advice with my own gardening challenge. I killed a cactus. Anyway, my dad brought this planter box over for our front yard, and he and the kids planted these melon seeds in it. And those melons started out gangbusters. We're talking vines spreading and leaves unfurling and flowers blooming. And this little melon appeared, and we were so excited. But then weeks went by, and that sad little gumball of a melon didn't get any bigger. Yeah, we watered. And then everything just withered and died. What went wrong? (laughs) Tell me more about the melon. What color was it? It was green and kind of striped yellow. I mean, it was kind of small because it was the size of a gumball when it appeared. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that there are some melons that do better in planters than others?
1: I think some melons do better in this type of climate than others. Um, Part of why a lot of watermelons grow so well in the South like in the southern united states is because they have really really hot days but then it gets pretty cold at night too and a lot of melons actually really need that cold night to really ripen and get super juicy and sweet so that's the first thing that kind of came up for me in in wondering maybe why this little guy couldn't make it through
3: what do you think jay oh i just i just had an idea um can you like imagine the garden where it was growing the little box and maybe you see the you see the garden itself. You see the melon, the little withering vine, all sad, and all that work you put into it. And do you see the soil around the melon? Can you de- Can you describe that?
2: It was some organic potting soil out of a bag.
3: Mm. And um, tell, tell me more. Like, what, Did you just buy it from a bag and dump it right in the box, threw a melon in, and just hope for the best?
2: That's an accurate description of what happened.
3: Would you say that that was the last time you added anything to that garden box, as far as soil or maybe, like, something else? Yes. I could say that. I'm sure you watered plenty. I'm sure you sang to that melon. I'm sure you loved that melon. We I'm loved it up. I'm pretty sure you just, it just froze to death, basically. And the way that we like to think of melons as not freezing to death is just like if it was cold at night. We give it a little blanket. And a blanket for any garden, especially one with a weird San Francisco climate. It's, like, it's very confusing for a melon. They need a blanket. And what we use... Well, it's pretty much what you guys all have a little tub of right in front of you. It's basically some, some soil you just add to the box every once in a while, kind of keep it alive. And you're like, well, where am I going to get some soil? The best thing you can do is just some mulch. You know, just some wood chip mulch, some straw mulch, something pretty. They use these fancy mulches you can even buy in the store with mosses. You can get some nice mulch. And if you add that to your soil, the garden will actually not freeze to death.
2: All right. I'm going to give that a try. Now... Let's have a question from someone in our audience here at the Soma Street Food Park in San Francisco.
8: John Tacolino, I'm in Mountain View and I'm renting a house that has a very small garden. But my question is, we use permaculture, the word permaculture, but what does that mean for a tiny garden in a backyard of a 800, 1200 square foot rental house?
1: Well, what what it would mean for any space is just how to maximize the amount of food you can get out of whatever size that space is. It really just depends on first what you want. Do you want to be getting as many vegetables out of that space as possible? Do you want to be getting fruits? Do you want to have chickens? Do you want to have your fruit trees being watered by your
8: laundry water? I'd love chickens, of course, but I don't think that's practical right now. Uh Compost to start, then vegetables of some sort and fruit would be great, but fruit might be a bit much also
1: if you have enough space to do one or two four by eight foot raised beds that'll get you probably everything you need for you and your family and there's actually a really amazing way of planting fruit trees where um, you can actually train them to grow along your fence and not take up any instead of being big round bushes they'll actually be It's called a spalliating tree. So we put those in as much as we can because you can just stick fruit trees around the perimeter of your yard. And then you can also have those trees watered through a gray water system and you can reroute water from your washing machine into your landscape and actually be using your water twice in a way. Yeah. And as far as the composting systems go, yeah, the worm bins are really the way to go. They're really small, about a foot by two feet, and you can just kind of stick them in any warm place that you have. Um, and they're really efficient and compact. All right. Thank you much. Hi, my name is Sandeep
0: Frar. Um I'm interested in the worm bins, um, but it seems a little bit intimidating to have worms hanging out in the kitchen. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit more about how to get that started and how to use it to its full potential.
1: The way I have it set up in my house and a lot of other people do is you have a, a bin like a, just a compost container that you keep in your kitchen uh, where you throw your food scraps um, just while they're filling up. And then once that bin is filled up, I take it outside to where my worm bin is and actually throw those in with the worms there. How the worm bins work is they're stackable trays and you actually start at the bo- with the bottom tray. You throw your food scraps in there, somehow obtain about half a pound to a pound of worms. A lot of nurseries or there's um, urban farm supply stores that can o- you can often buy red wiggler worms. And just throw the worms in there, give them a little bit of bedding either with shredded newspaper or coconut husks or anything that's kind of mulchy. They actually like to, to live and in, in burrow in that cellulose. And then, and they do like it to stay a little moist, so usually just adding food scraps allows for some moisture. And they'll start eating um, all those food scraps, and then actually there's a bacteria in the digestive tract of the worms that is what... Um, breaks the food down and produces the compost that we really want from it. And so as that bottom tray fills up, you can actually um, just start adding the food scraps to the next tray up and the worms just travel from the bottom tray up through the holes in the next tray up. So the, the compost will be ready at the bottom first and you just start picking out the trays and you can just go ahead and throw that compost on top of your raised beds and mix it into the top soil there. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Well,
3: I have a a worm bin underneath the stairs in my place, and um, I rarely visit it. I might be guilty of worm neglect at some point. But um, it's worth saying that once it's set up, and a little bit of time at at the beginning, great great instructions here from May, once it's set up, you don't have to do a lot of work for it. And it's as productive as you want it to be by how much you want to add to it. And it's resilient to the neglect of an urban dweller who forgets they have a worm bin for three months at a time. Um, the most important thing is that you do feed them eventually, or they'll, you know, they'll starve to death. And then, you know, just like the garden, um, they don't want to get too cold at night, too hot during the day. You know, they like that sort of comfort zone. And the best thing that you can do if you don't do anything for your worms is give them some fresh newpa- newspaper or, um, uh, like, carbon mulch. You know, something that they can chew on, like, like uh, old shredded paper. And uh, junk mail is a great source of that, um, as long as you don't take out the glossy coupons, because they're pretty useless to the worms. Um, you'll find that uh, taking some, like, newspaper, maybe the coffee grinds with the filter, just that on its own, once in a while, give the worms a little bit of love. And like, like May pointed out earlier, they're 24-7. They're all, they don't stop making more of a compost out of what they do. It's pretty much their jobs.
2: Thank you. Worm bins sound great. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Chew On This. Urban gardening experts Jay Rosenberg with 49 Farms and May Wynn with Planting Justice are helping us figure out how to garden even if we don't have a lot of space. We're at the Soma Street Food Park in San Francisco. Many of the food vendors here get their produce from local farms. Their choice reflects a growing national awareness of the importance of eating food that's locally produced. And it doesn't get more local than growing it yourself in your own backyard or in that lot down the street. But if you're like me, you weren't born with a green thumb. So let's learn some planting tips from the pros. Jay Rosenberg, what have you brought for us?
3: Well, we brought these, um, well, we call them the magic beans. Um, dangers of giants and uh, losing your last cow are not really a risk here, but most importantly, uh, we have some uh, amazing magic beans that really are going to grow well in San Francisco, and for folks who want to get a little dirty while we're on the air here, we're going to get a chance to go ahead and do that.
2: Great, let's do it.
3: So there's a, there's a pretty amazing mix of magic beans here. It starts with um, scarlet runners, which are a uh, tall, tall climbing... Almost like a big pea pod, and the way scarlet runners grow is um, they'll grow tall, and they'll crawl, they'll climb anything you can get. Mostly, you don't even need any good uh, fertilizer in your soil. So we have some pretty nutrient deficient soil here, and we'll be using that to grow the beans. The, the beans will provide the nutrient in a magic sort of way. So in the mix, beyond just the beyond just the scarlet runner, what we'll find is there's also some sweet peas and green beans that grow in a bush form. So if we plant them and the scarlet runner doesn't grow, it may be that it was too sunny for the scarlet runners, or it was too dry for scarlet runners. So we put a few other beans in the mix that are dry, drought tolerant and maybe like a little bit more sun. So we'll find there's a, a pigeon pea in here, which is the typical doll of uh, continental India.
2: So do you already have a garden? Uh, no, I have a ledge and a landing, but I'm interested in, in the whole process of small gardening so do you have an idea of where these are going to go? Are they going to go on the ledge?
8: I'm trying to figure that out right now. But I'll, I'll, I'll make some kind of a climbing place for it and figure it out.
2: How about you? Do you have a garden?
8: Um, well, we have a garden in Pacifica, but my business is in Hayward. It's an, an industrial business. So I'm thinking of growing these along. We have a yard in the back. It's an industrial yard. And we're going to grow it up along our fence and our barbed wire fence. <laughs> and I'll just change my name to Jack.
2: <laughs> Fantastic. Well... We're going to finish planting these magic beans and be right back.
6: Yes, I know how to make a garden grow. Sun and rain and soil down low. Yes, I know how to make a garden thrive. And keep
2: it, keep it alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd like to do a second season of Chew On This and we could use your help. If you go to our website, ChewOnThisRadio.com, you'll see a link to a brief survey. Fill it out and you'll show potential funders that Chew On This gives you the information you need to make the world a better place starting right where you live. That's ChewOnThisRadio.com. Thank you. You're listening to Chew On This. I'm Lisa Rothman. We're at the Soma Street Food Park in San Francisco because we want to harness the power of community to find practical ways to solve problems. Today, how to garden even if you don't have much space to work with. Urban gardening experts Jay Rosenberg and May Wynn are answering the audience's questions. May's a permaculture designer with Planting Justice, a nonprofit organization that has an unusual fee structure. For every three gardens they plant at full price, they plant a garden at the home of a low-income family for free.
1: Hi, I'm Sam, and I live in Noe Valley. In my backyard, we have pretty good sun, but the planting areas are
7: postage stamp, and the sun is shaded by neighbor's trees a lot of the time. What are some plants that I could grow that would be Uh, vegetable plants, edible
1: vegetables I'm thinking chard or kale that would tolerate uh, this kind of shade
2: mostly
3: I'll tell you um, you have uh, the best problem yet because you talk about having a great spot with plenty of sun but uh, an abundance of shade In some ways, you have the best of both worlds, because with a little bit of work, maybe pruning or convincing your neighbors to make some thinning of some branches on one of those trees, you might be able to get some light specifically where you want it. But at the same time, half of this city is dealing with your fog and shade issue full-time, and their gardens are thriving right now with winter greens and lettuces and onions and garlic and amazing flowers. And I think that if you look to just what's on the other side of the city, where the sun isn't so bright so often, you'll see the kind of shady, kind of loving plants, so it'll go great, right in your hood.
2: Hi, my name is Donna Drummond, and I was interested in knowing about vertical gardening and how I should get started and what kind of plants can be grown in a vertical garden.
1: The magic beans are a really, really good start. <laughs> they all grow really fast and can get really tall. They'll pretty much grow as tall as your, you can build your trellis. So just shoot for the stars on that one. There's also other um, perennial vining plants, things like hops and kiwis and grapes um, and passion flower grow really, really well in this climate. And they'll also just grow as far as you can trellis them up. And yeah, it's a great technique to grow um, vining plants along your fences, along any walls that you have, any space that you just want to see as more green. Um, and you can also be getting fruit from those plants. Okay.
0: I was sort of
2: interested in, in the Civic Center, um, there's a there's a community garden, and along the wall they've built a structure.
0: Mm-hmm. And they
2: have rows, and they're going to put earth in there and grow things. And I was thinking more along that line,
0: um, but I don't know what kind of plants they're planning to put in there, so I was wondering about that specifically.
3: I I think I I saw that garden, and it had these, uh, interestingly, pockets. Yes. They were called the habit tiles, I think. And it was like tiles on the wall that had pockets for dirt, and Uh in each dirt pocket a plant was growing. And I think the easy win is, um, even for Lisa who killed her cactus, it's to grow succulents. Because you don't really have to water the succulents. You can just love them, and they'll just do amazing work. When they die, they make more. Like, it's just beautiful. Um, And you can get a lot of win out of a succulent growing on a bag on a wall. It's so much more pleasant than a wall. But I think if you have enough soil, and you know what I saw in some of those was up to uh, a full five-gallon bucket's worth of dirt in right, those shelves or right. in those louvered wall sides, you can grow a lot in you know, six to eight inches thick of soil yeah. as long as you keep it moist and mulched.
2: mulch that's the key always. Okay, yeah. thank you very much. Hello,
7: my name's Roman Kanacki. My wife and I have a little planter uh, out on our balcony that's about two feet by three feet that we grow herbs on. And we're having a debate whether using coffee grounds as mulch is good or bad. She said it acidifies the soil. I say it's organic material and it should be good for the soil. Can you help us with that?
3: I, I, would, I would love to defend the coffee here. Um, <laughs> a, a big fan. Um, you know, to be honest with you, it is nitrogen-rich and acidic when you add coffee grinds to a garden as a soil amendment. And the best thing to do is really mix it in with something else. And, um... We going to go back to the melon problem we had a little while ago. Adding something is a good solution. If you add more organic matter to your garden, you'll be adding more fertility, more life, less fertilizer later, perhaps, less frozen melons in the middle of summer. I think what you'll see with the herbs and stuff is you'll want to find a nice mix that provides some carbon as well. And that's, again, just like the problem with the melon, is some good mulch. If you have a wood chip mulch, it might be called nutrient deficient mulch, but you're adding that nutrient with the coffee. That would balance out the, like, cream and sugar in your cup, and it would balance out the acidity the garden would be taking with a large amount of grinds. And the other thing is you don't have to add it all at once. I wouldn't bury a tree in a mountain of coffee grinds and say, hey, what happened? Why didn't that work? But if you add it a little bit over time, maybe, you know, dressing the garden a little bit, like sprinkles on a Sunday, I bet you'll find that a lot more nutrient will be available to the garden, especially if you mix in that mulch.
1: I can add something, too. One of my favorite things to do with coffee grounds is actually to feed it to my worms. Um, the worms totally dig the coffee grounds, they kind of get caffeinated themselves, and they just start eating your food scraps like crazy. so and that 's <laughs> another way of kind of doing that mixing filtration process so you 're not giving your plants all that coffee at once, but it goes through the worm's digestive system before, and then they give you amazing compost so.
3: May makes this great point. If there's like, oh, I want to do something, and I want to do something to grow food to be local, more sustainable in my kitchen. If there's one thing to really do, it's about looking looking at your waste stream, looking at what comes out of your kitchen as a byproduct, as a waste product, and goes into one of the green, blue, or black, or some other bin. And maybe start to consider, what could I keep right here at home in a worm bin and produce something out of it, rather than adding it to the truck, which gets shipped to you know, who knows where anymore, but it's at least 50 miles and maybe up to 4,000 when you put it in one of those bins. So, you know, this idea of, you know, a worm bin, revolutionary work here, if you, can, if you can keep some of your scraps, like some of the things that when you chop up to make a soup or something, it doesn't have to go into a landfill, it doesn't even have to go into the city's composting system. I mean, it should if that's the only option. But we can create small scale composting systems where we have a worm bin or maybe even a small heap for our house or our building with our neighbors or our, even our block scale. And you can imagine like a block party style compost flip out where everyone has a good time and collects all of their green matter from one day. If we did that one day a year, we'd be diverting like 1% of all of the waste that we create over the year. Think about doing that once a week. You know, oh my God, change the world with you know, 15% of all of our garbage not being sent into trucks the carbon sequestered, not being using fuel, the not being on a truck, not being dumped, not being off-gassing on some distant heap. We can do amazing things with the local worm bin, and it can fit under your counter, inside the kitchen, with no uh, pests doesn't or smell. pain. smell. Yeah, no pain.
2: <laughs> You're listening to Chew On This. I'm Lisa Rothman. Today, we're at the Soma Street Food Park in San Francisco. We're finding out how to garden, even if your yard is really small. Our experts are Jay Rosenberg, co-founder of 49 Farms, an organization dedicated to urban farming. We're also joined by May Wynn. She's a permaculture designer with Planting Justice, which was founded by Gavin Raiders and Halei Zandi. Let's hear more about what their organization does from some of the people who work with them. They're planting a garden in a neighborhood that houses low-income immigrants. It's in San Rafael, a city that's about 40 minutes away from here, across the Golden Gate Bridge.
6: Right
5: up. Looks like three feet to me. Well, hi, my name is Kevin. I'm from Planting Justice, and we're here at the um, canal project. I'm working on some raised beds right here. I'm gonna put some soil in here so we can do some planting in here, and uh, you know, get it looking nice. Get it looking real nice.
7: Uh, my name is Julio Madrigal, and I'm building this garden for the people in San Rafael. Well, there's basically, this is a community garden. We'll build around 70 beds, um, and it's mostly for the people. We have split beds, so if people just need half of one bed, they could do that. We also have raised beds for people who really can not bend down to the ground. They can start using these beds, and it's to encourage more people to grow their own plants. Hello, my name is Salvador Mateo, and I'm an edible landscaper. I work for Planting Justice, which are the ones doing the garden. And, you know, helping the Canal Alliance build a community garden. Uh, we've done work all around the Bay Area and in in San Francisco. We've been here in San Rafael. We've gone to Antioch, um, East Oakland, West Oakland, North Oakland, Berkeley, uh, Vallejo. About two and a half years ago, um, when I was still in high school, I was a senior in high school. And Gavin and Hale, co-founders of Planting Justice, came over to our school for our garden program. And they introduced us to this program that we were going to do, we were going to create a garden in our school. And from there, Gavin and Halle became our mentors. We started working with them, and they started helping us know more about what organic is, how we can implement it into our community. And from there on, after we graduated from high school, they offered us a job with them as landscapers.
5: All lined up, there we go, there we go, all righty. I've been working for Planting Justice for about 11 months. Yes, and, and I love it, man, it's, it's real, it's real therapeutic. Met a lady named uh, Beth Waitkiss, which was in the um, Insight Gardening program. The Insight Gardening program is actually out of uh, San Quentin Prison. All the designers, and like I say, Gavin and LA, the founders, they, they teach you basically everything you're gonna need to know. So once I got out, I had already been knowing them like two or three years. So they told me, you know, once I got out, you know, come check us out and, you know, we'll have something for you. So once I got out, I went, you know, met with uh, Gavin and Halle, and they got me started. Things happen in my life, but I've always had a job. I've, you know, worked from thrifties to UPS, you know, Blockbuster, customer service, Nordstrom's. But I finally found out what I wanted to do. And this is it. This is definitely it.
2: That was Julio Madrigal, Salvador Mateo, and Kevin Williams, hard at work at a planting justice project in the Canal District of San Rafael, which is across the Golden Gate Bridge. You're listening to Chew On This. I'm Lisa Rothman. Today, we're learning how to make the most of our gardens, even if they're the size of a ping-pong table. Coming up, we'll get more of the audience's questions answered, and a food truck owner will explain the benefits of cooking in a small kitchen.
7: I went to a garden party Reminisce with my old friends A chance to share old memories And play our songs again When I got to the garden party They all knew my name No one recognized me I didn't look the same But it's alright
2: Food trucks rely on word of mouth, and so does Chew on This. The next time you're enjoying a meal with friends or coworkers, let them know the good ideas you heard here and send them to our website, ChewOnThisRadio.com. That's ChewOnThisRadio.com. Thank you.
5: from the empanada truck.
8: Beef brisket sandwich. Popcorn chicken burrito.
1: With french fries, salad, some rice, tahini, and spicy sauce. Loaded with awesome ground chicken.
7: It's got kind of a gravy consistency to it.
2: So yeah, I'm having a Pacific Brew Lab uh, hibiscus beer. It's like the stringy, nice, cool cheese.
7: I would definitely eat it
8: again.
2: Many people are enjoying lots of different foods here at the Soma Street Food Park in San Francisco. I'm Lisa Rothman. You're listening to Chew On This, fresh ideas made to order. We take a challenge people face in their daily lives and ask experts how to handle it. Today, how to garden even if your yard is tiny? We're at this food truck park because Chew On This celebrates community. And what community celebration would be complete without food? About this time in the show, the smells from the food truck park start to get to me and my tummy starts rumbling. So, let's meet Emily and Frances Ho, the owners of the MANA food truck, and find out how they feel about cooking in a small space.
6: My personal, I would like to cook in the small restaurant, the small kitchen because it feel like more home style. Small space, the challenge it will be like um, the people walking together. I think small kitchens. One more, one more thing I like it is uh, um, they feel more warm. Yeah, and, and uh, we can, we can speak very close, we can talk very close. But the big restaurant. Sometimes we did the yelling.
4: Well, we met actually in a restaurant too called Ebisu. It's a really well-known sushi restaurant in Sunset District.
6: Then we, we not we not we not stay too long. Around a like seven seven months or or, or eight months, we decide to marry, and then also I'm that time I'm to open my own restaurant.
4: And uh, we get lucky. We got a bigger place in American Canyon. Uh, that was a huge place. And uh, the it, like the business, the economy, I should say, didn't go well. So we have to end up closing it after a few years. And after that, we we didn't know what we we're gonna do. And um, things, you know, fall keep falling. We lost our house. It was like really sad. We were searching in like Craigslist, looking for new restaurant space. Just all of a sudden, there's like a food truck pops up, you know, on Craigslist, and we were like looking into it and uh, get to know a little bit more about food truck business. And we realized, hmm, you know what? We like this better than, you know, stacking in a restaurant in a box. The name of the truck is called Mana. And so our slogan is like, good eats from heaven. The main thing that I noticed that um, the difference between food truck and a restaurant, you have more communication with the other business. People are so much more friendlier with running at a food truck than in a restaurant
6: you cook some something to to other person you can after they eat she have a lot of feelings coming out so um, that's the way I like to cook it I like, I like to see people's feeling yeah and um, also it's make people happy but I think um, that is my my passion yeah to cook it. yes that's
5: it. <laughs> it's the little
8: I'm
2: Lisa Rothman. You're listening to Chew On This. You just heard from the owners of the Mana food truck here at the Soma Street Food Park. Later on, several audience members will have a chance to win some food from Mana. It's one of 10 food trucks that come here daily on a rotating basis. All the food truck workers know how to make the most of a small space. Today, Our urban gardening experts, Jay Rosenberg and Mae Wynn, are dishing up ideas of their own about how we can do that too. Let's find out more ways that small can be tremendous when it comes to gardening.
9: Hi, my name's Erin Hill, and um, I'm asking a question for my neighbor. She was given a Meyer lemon tree five years ago. It's in our backyard in North Beach. It gets partial sun, um, it, it is starting to fruit and flower, um, it's in clay, part clay soil. She dug down three feet and then um, put potting soil around the rest of the in the roots. Um, but it's it seems like it's just not doing all that well. It doesn't seem all that healthy. So she's wondering if you know of anything she could do to augment that little tree.
1: Um, my first suggestion is always add compost for that. Um, what happens when you dig a big hole and put a tree in it and then add just like a totally different type of soil to it without mixing it in with some of the native soil is your tree can become root bound um, because it'll start to act like it's just in a container of potting soil. Um, So if she does have really clay soil around her, that potting soil might not actually be able to interact that well with the really dense clay soil. There could be just some soil issues there and and next time she plants a tree or if if that tree is still young enough to be taken out and then have the soil that it's sitting in... um, just mixed with some of the native soil to kind of say like, hey, you're in this like big open space, like you should grow as big as you want to get. I'm not sure what the problem is, if it's not producing fruit or it's not like producing a lot of branches and leaves, like what is indicating that it's not doing so well?
9: Um, It it does have fruit, but I think it just has so much potential. It's, you know, it'll have maybe five little fruits and, but it's it's big enough, but it's just not flowering and fruiting as much as we think it probably could, so...
3: It, first of all, you know, it would be great to see how the neighbor's lemon tree is doing. So looking around the block and seeing if the other trees are performing similarly. Um, and the questions about the soil that you planted it into, you'll probably can figure that out over time. But um, what I found when I were transplant a tree is that in order to like invigorate the root system and to give it some growth, um, is to give it a pruning, is to give it a deliberate haircut and say, all right, let's get growing in this spot now. Okay. And it's dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. And if you had to, like, make a decision and you had no guidance, but you're like, I'm pruning it, just look out. Um, there's, like, three things that you should look for. You should look for any branches that are damaged. And if they're damaged, they're great to prune right then and there. And then look for branches that are um, diseased, like they have a fungus or some weird cut those off and then the last of the three best places to prune and don't do too much at once because you can't regrow the tree right away if you prune too much is to find the the branches that are maybe going in the direction you don't like and and those are the three d's for pruning fruit trees is um, make decisions around damaged diseased or in the wrong direction and the best direction for a tree branch is up so the worst is down. So if you have a beautiful branch and then it has a branch going down, that's a great choice.
9: Perfect, thank you so much. That's really cool. Hi, my name's Maggie and I've lived in a small apartment for many years and I'm also gardening challenged. And I wanna know, are there any herbs or vegetables that I could grow in a pot that are gonna do okay in an apartment? I don't even have porch access.
3: Do you make breakfast?
9: Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And
3: do you, like, make omelets and stuff like that? Occasionally. Um, You can easily add, like, rosemary or or thyme or something that can grow, like, right on a windowsill or a box or even a container on the counter that gets a little bit of light when you're making up your eggs. Okay. You can also easily have, like, a parsley or a chive a little green onion added to your toast. You know, just that little extra flavor.
9: And they don't need a lot of room.
3: Uh, maybe two inches deep and three inches wide. I mean, yeah, the, the amount of soil we had today in our little exercise, basically a four inch pot, okay. you can get started with that and have something that you could prune right from right away and be getting a little yum.
4: Excellent.
1: And the more you prune them, the more they'll grow, too. P- plants actually want to be picked, so you'll be surprised if you harvest that little thyme plant in that little four-inch pot and you keep harvesting it, but leave enough for it to just keep growing, you'll, you'll get a lot of mileage out of it. Are there vegetables
9: I could try?
3: You know, it's, it's tough when you don't have the wind and the pollination and, uh, and all that stuff that happens outdoors, and I guess this goes back to that question earlier of, like, well, what do you mean by a permaculture garden as opposed to just a box of food? We're trying to build an ecosystem. We're trying to welcome life, creating life by inviting more life. And the worms bring compost and fertility. The birds and bugs bring the pollination and the the bonus. And in that, what we're ultimately trying to achieve is uh, less work for us, less work for us in our gardens, uh, more uh, self-maintained systems. When we walk through the forest, we don't find anybody watering it. We don't find anybody weeding it. We don't find anybody fertilizing it you might be lucky enough to find somebody harvesting from it. But for the most part, it's a self-maintained system. And the term for, you know, removing a forest is deforestry. Like, that's the only way to stop a forest from growing, is to remove it. And that's the design I'd like to implement for our gardens, is a garden that doesn't need us to visit it consistently to maintain, or to water, or to fertilize. But to really have it be self-resilient, self-reliant, and self-fertilizing, and using gravity for water, and... Uh, local shade plants for windbreak so that the wind doesn't blow it over. And with that, you'll find that uh, you can get a lot of enjoyment from sitting and watching it grow and having a food byproduct that's just delicious and abundant.
2: You're listening to Chew On This. I'm Lisa Rothman, and that was our urban gardening expert, Jay Rosenberg. We'll find out more about the work Jay does putting an urban farm in each of San Francisco's 49 square miles when we come back.
6: Plant a radish, get a radish, never any doubt. That's why I love vegetables, you know what you're about. Plant a turnip, get a turnip, maybe you'll get two. That's why I love vegetables, you know that they'll come through. They're dependable, they're befriendable, they're the best pal. The first season
2: parrot's parrot's of Chew On This is five episodes. Would you like seconds? Chill. You can help make that happen. Simply go to our website, chewonthisradio.com, click the link to the survey, and in less time than it takes to order from a food truck, you show potential funders that Chew On This is connecting with you and making a positive impact. That's chewonthisradio.com. Order up!
6: if it's very vegetarian.
2: you're listening to Chew On This, I'm Lisa Rothman. If you're just joining us, we're finding out how to garden in small spaces. We're at the Soma Street Food Park in San Francisco because food truck parks like this one give us the chance to hear from a broad range of community voices. Voices like yours. If you weren't able to attend the show, but you'd like to ask a question or share information, visit our website at ChewOnThisRadio.com. Right now we're under a highway overpass across the street from a Costco. You may be surprised to learn that there are actually two farms within three blocks of here. One of the reasons urban gardening is doing so well in San Francisco and across the nation is because cities like Detroit, Baltimore, New York, Seattle, Oakland, and San Francisco have passed laws to encourage gardening. Gardening on vacant lots and land that the city owns. Chew on this correspondent, Charlie Mintz, visited a few of these farms.
8: Carrie Hughes stands on the sidewalk near a chain-link fence on the corner of Fell and Laguna Streets in San Francisco. Behind us, cars roar past the rows of tidy Victorians, but Hughes is more interested in the wide, sloping lot in front of us on the other side of the fence.
0: This is how you get on the, on the Bay Bridge, this is how you get onto you know, 101, etc. But that was you know back in 1989.
8: She points at a strip of cracked pavement cutting through the lot, it's the last remnants of a freeway on-ramp that collapsed in the Loma Prieta earthquake. From then until 2010, this space was abandoned.
0: It's 21 years that this area was not used, as far as I know, for anything outside of just drug use and trash. So,
8: That's all gone. Now the lot's occupied by the Hayes Valley Farm. It's two acres, sunny in parts, shady in others, with tall trees clustered in the center. The pungent smell of compost, wafts over beds of chard, kale, bamboo, all sprouted, quite literally, from the freeway's remains. The farm produces thousands of pounds of food a year. Making that happen took a big idea. Permaculture. Permaculture. It's a design method focused on using space efficiently, working with nature, in sustaining resources rather than depleting them. It aims to get the most use out of the least amount of space, which makes it perfect for urban gardening. As an example, Hughes points out a spiral mound of dirt at the south end of the farm.
0: The mound is about three feet tall, I guess, uh, and about four feet wide. It does look like a little volcano.
8: It's actually a super-efficient herb garden.
0: Basically, it's building up, you know, and so you basically are going to get definitely 2x or 3x or even 4x the, the amount of food off of this same square footage of space.
8: Permaculture is everywhere at the farm. It's in the farm's shape, which uses natural slopes to draw water downward. It's in the seed library, which houses and shares special seeds that thrive in San Francisco's climate. It's even in the ground you walk on. Back in 2010, volunteers covered the site with more than 80,000 pounds of cardboard and organic matter to create a rich, human-made soil. These are all big ideas that fit well in this small space. But maybe the biggest idea was one that, on its face actually seems like the opposite of permaculture.
3: Since September 2009, when we started designing the project, we designed it to be temporary.
8: Jay Rosenberg helped start Hayes Valley Farm. It's on property owned by the city of San Francisco. And he says the project was always meant to be a placeholder, something to do with the space until the economy picked up and a developer built it out.
3: It's sort of like a, the city has a driveway and they're letting us put a lemonade stand on it.
8: In technical terms, this is an interim use agreement. That's what allowed the farm to operate for the past three years. The interim's up, though. Construction on a condo slash retail development is set to start sometime in 2013, and what Rosenberg calls the freeway food forest is supposed to clear out entirely by the summer. But Rosenberg says that's okay. Permaculture is a way of designing for the long term, of planning for sustainability under any circumstances. Knowing the farm site would be temporary, let the farmers make plans to endure. To see how, we'll have to follow the bees.
0: No trespassing, honeybee yard. You had disturbed the honeybees. Their pollination work and our fruits of
8: that. Long before they knew exactly when they'd have to leave, Hayes Valley farmers started moving bees from the farm to this site on San Bruno Avenue, right above the 101 freeway. It's about four miles away. Hundreds of thousands of bees, almost a dozen colonies, made the trip. The new caretaker in her white protective suit is Karen Peteros, co-founder of San Francisco Bee Cause.
0: These kind of projects really do build community. Um, Sometimes it doesn't seem that obvious, but if you start up a project in the neighborhood, it's kind of like they will come, you know?
8: (laughs) And they have been. Peteros says curious neighbors have started poking around regularly. Some even want to volunteer. For the most part, beekeeping in a city, it's a lot like beekeeping anywhere. But getting the land to keep your bees... That's a distinctly urban story, and one with unusual b beefel- I mean, bedfellows.
0: It says 1X+. plus.
8: Looming over us is a huge Clear Channel billboard advertising a new phone. The lot we're standing on, Clear Channel owns that too. Buildings would block the billboard, so the company always kept this lot vacant, until Peteros went to them with an idea.
0: It was just a fallow lot, it was just an ugly weed lot, so... We told them we'd take it from an eyesore to eye candy. Become a neighborhood asset rather than a neighborhood uh, negative.
8: Petros isn't just a beekeeper. She's also an award-winning employment attorney, in case you are wondering how she negotiated with a multi-billion dollar corporation. Long story short, she secured a one-year lease basically for free. In spring of 2013, that lease goes month to month, though, which means Clear Channel can terminate it at any point. Piedero says this is just a reality that urban agriculture projects have to deal with.
0: You know, whenever you have any property in the city, especially if privately owned, you never can guarantee you'll have it for any period of time, so we'll just have to take it one season at a time.
8: If the apiary loses its lease, the bees will have to move to another site. The way the farmers see it, though, that's okay. Permaculture means working with the environment that exists around you. If that means making a garden temporary but mobile, so be it. And if that means asking favors from a corporation, fine. The goal, says Jay Rosenberg, is to get as much of San Francisco planted as possible.
3: I'm checking the map first. We're entering mile 34, and we're leaving mile 27, which is just east of mile 26, where we started...
8: Rosenberg's 82. driving the city in a van. He's navigating with a map subdivided into 49 square miles. Its goal is to see at least one community garden in each. Right now, the map includes everything from a planned bioremediation in Hunter's Point to a school garden where pumpkins grow through a chain link fence. But there are also neighborhoods that still don't have any community gardens.
3: And out here, there's spaces that are just pretty much blank.
8: To fix this, Rosenberg is working with a project called 49 Farms. It's an attempt to link up existing farms, help new ones begin, and achieve that goal of a community garden in every one of the city's 49 square miles. The plan is to make San Francisco agriculture thrive, whether by providing especially resilient seeds or helping aspiring farmers navigate complex city bureaucracy.
3: There's so many places to make a mistake and to check the wrong box on a form or put the wrong thing in your, in your application. That We've made a long list of these mistakes.
8: Urban gardening takes more than just a green thumb. It takes a creative approach to working in a city, with governments, with corporations, and with unused space, whether it's the lot down the corner or a corner of your backyard. Permaculture is the guiding principle, permanent change the ultimate goal. But in a city developing as fast as San Francisco, where empty lots don't stay empty long, permanent doesn't necessarily mean putting down roots in just one place. For Chew on This, I'm Charlie Mintz.
2: You're listening to Chew On This. I'm Lisa Rothman. We've been talking about permaculture with Jay Rosenberg of 49 Farms and May Wynn with Planting Justice. Thank you both so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Now it's time for the Meal of Fortune Challenge. We have a gourd here that Jay Rosenberg picked from Hayes Valley Farm. It's about a foot long. It's green. And it looks like a cross between a watermelon and a dinosaur egg. We've got a picture of it up on our website at chewonthisradio.com, which you could check out if you're playing along at home or on your smartphone, but not if you're driving your car. Here's today's challenge. If the scientific name for carrot is...
0: Saucus Carota.
2: And the scientific name for kale is?
4: Brassica oleracea.
2: What do you think the scientific name for this big green gourd should be? We're not going for accuracy here. We're going for creativity? up, The people here at San Francisco's Soma Street Food Park have turned in their ideas for what they think the scientific name for this gourd should be. At this very moment, our two gardening experts, Jay Rosenberg and Mae Wynn, are choosing the two winners. You're probably wondering, what'll they win? What's today's meal of fortune? maki rolls from Nana Food Truck. These are very special maki rolls. The vegetarian one has lotus root, bamboo shoots, baby corn, and shiitake mushrooms. The other roll contains a shrimp tempura, and it's topped with spicy, creamy scallops. And the winners are...
3: Muriel Ullman with Cucumberus blimpus.
1: And we have Sam G. with Green Paper
2: paperweightia (laughs) giganteus. And just so you know, the actual scientific name for the gourd is?
4: Cucurbita physifolia.
2: So Sam and Muriel won the meal of fortune with skill, but you can win with luck as well people put their names in the official chew on this picnic basket and the lucky meal of fortune winners are
9: Joanna Bonheim
8: John O'Dove,
9: Rachel Harmon
8: Tony Domensky, and Sam Geffen
2: Our production engineer is Jim Bennett. Matt Martin, the general manager of KALW, is our advising producer. Ashley Ann Krigbaum is our Outreach Coordinator and Production Associate. Maggie Ballard is our Creative Consultant. Our mic mavens today are Erica Bridgman and Erica Moo. The sound editor is Eric Wayne. Brent Norton composed the theme music. Justine Choi, Melissa Fries, Luis Granados, Julieta Kusnier, and Connie Chan Wang are the show's Idea Advisors. Thanks to our audience here for asking such great questions. So I want to check in with you. Have you had a bite yet? What are you particularly enjoying about that maki roll?
4: I like the spicy texture and the perfectly done rice.
2: How about you?
1: It's uh, very saucy and great with using your hands for
2: This concludes the first season of Chew on This. If you'd like to hear all five episodes, visit chewonthisradio.com. We'll have updates there about our second season. Thanks for listening.